All right. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Seaweed Brain. Today, we are going to be looking at chapters 12 on through a little bit. We haven't decided. Maybe we're going to ADR this. Is that the right term? Um, 12 through 19, 12 through 17. (laughs) (laughs) Post-production. We're going to be talking about Brooklyn. We're going to be talking about indestructible cows. We're going to be talking about our actual, real, unfiltered feelings about Will Solis. So um, stick around. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everyone, to Seaweed Brain. It's my favorite kind of episode because we have Caitlin here with us as our special guest. What's up, Caitlin? Really buttering me up. (laughs) Well, you're one of the people who agrees with us the most. So it's easy for me to be like, Caitlin, one of our best guests. You know what? Like sometimes you need some people like that in your life. Exactly. Although we were just saying before we started recording that there are some characters you've never gotten a chance to talk about on the show before. So maybe we'll finally have some like discord in. Wait, is that even a real word or is that yes. just the name of the application? No, no, no. That's a real word. <laughs> That's actually quite an interesting name for a chatting app now that I think about it. <laughs> well, before we get into the troglodytes and the glow in the dark boyfriends of it all that we have today and the Rachel Elizabeth Dare of it all, this has been quite a week. Every week has been quite a week lately, which is great for the Percy Jackson fandom. It's been great. I literally go into Twitter and I just like see Percy Jackson trending, but there's usually a reason now and it's so good <laughs> because before it would just be like trending because we we want something or we like, okay, so where, where are we going to get We're bullying this? Becky, yeah. Yeah, and then now it's like, oh my gosh, like there's actually real news to talk about. Like it's amazing. Yes, this week brought us the official wrap on principal photography for season one. We all thought it was going to be last week. I think that the kids thought it was going to be last week too, but it ended up being this week. (laughs) We know that basically they filmed some kind of scene in the dunk tank with Walker. That was the last thing they shot. And then they had a little wrap party in which they had lightning bolt shaped cookies and they had an ice sculpture shaped like a Pegasus that said season one of Percy Jackson and the Olympians, which is a big deal because while we do not technically have the green light for season two, this is, of course, an excellent sign that there is little to no chance they will not be (laughs) giving us the full onslaught (laughs) of five seasons for the show. They would be insane. It's like implied. There's no way. Yeah. A riot. I also want to rewind and give you a chance to talk about Annabeth's necklace because you weren't here a couple weeks ago when that happened. Okay, so I saw it and then I was just like, there's something about this photo. There's something about and I, I like I just was like on my phone, just like <laughs> my because like you can see that it looks kind of like a pendant. And I was like, oh my gosh, they're gonna like start official merch. That was my first kind of thought. And then I'm like zooming in and I'm like, that's not his necklace. And I was like looking at the more I looked at it, I was like, no, no way, you did not just do that to me. And it was Annabeth's necklace because it had the <laughs> ring on it. And I was like, oh, my heart. Maybe I cried a little bit, but, you know, it's fine. 
(laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. And then, of course, yesterday we also got the video of Walker submerged in the tank holding the whiteboard that says, we wrapped season one, thank you, and then them making him pick up another whiteboard that says, send help. Which is very Percy Jackson of him. Yes. All the while wearing his flannel jeans, uh, old school Vans outfit, which was my favorite part. Oh my gosh, it's like his default character outfit that everyone will be cosplaying in. Oh my god, you're right. The green flannel. (gasps) Yeah, thinking about it on like a bigger, you know how like people were selling the merch from the musical? Uh-huh. And then people started using that as their Percy Jackson cosplay instead of like the Camp Pablo t-shirt. It's really nice to think about it now. I'm just like, wow, look at him. Wow. He's so grown. Oh my God. He has his own cosplays <laughs> now. <laughs> in addition to like live tweeting or like live podcasting, I don't know what we're going to do for the premiere of the first episode, but I want to be like surrounded by people in real life. There's going to be so much going on. Like we're going to probably all be wearing green flannels and and vans. <laughs> and like be crying. So like nothing different to my normal, you know, get up. <laughs> yeah, I'll be soaking wet just like Walker was in that video, except it'll be from my tears. Yeah. Instead of <laughs> a tank of water. I look forward to it. Shall we then dive into Tower of Nero part three today? We are going to Brooklyn, am I right? We really are. We last left off at Camp Half-Blood preparing ourselves, and ourselves here means Apollo, Meg, Nico, and Will, to go off and collect Rachel to figure out how we're going to disable Nero's traps and surrender ourselves to Nero and defeat him and also maybe defeat Python at some point down the line. So specifically to pick up Rachel, we do have to go to Brooklyn. What Apollo has to say about Brooklyn is, quote, normally the greatest dangers there are congested traffic, expensive pokeballs, and not enough tables at the local coffee shops for all the aspiring screenwriters. Let's pause on this for a second. Let's take... Unfortunately, I laughed. Unfortunately, See, the thing I with laughed. when he goes into these like <laughs> monologues about New York City or rants, yeah, about America, I'm just like, you know, it would be so good if I knew what you were talking about because I'm an Australian. I don't know what you're talking about. Do you do you feel like you got a mental image based on that one sentence? <laughs> I did though. It does sound like Central, like Sydney. I guess the closest comparison I could ever get to New York. But I do want to say there's a possibility I may be in New York in the next 12 months. I'm planning it. Okay. That's a wide frame, but I'll take it. It is because I don't know if I have enough leave. (laughs) But we're figuring out because I really want to go before the show. So I get to like kind of see things. See like, oh, Percy was there. And really, it's just a really big like New York monument. Really, it was Vancouver. (laughs) But yeah. (laughs) Have you guys both seen the picture of them set dressing the fake entrance to the Empire State Building on the streets of Vancouver? I don't think so. It is so funny. It is this like 12 feet in width maximum storefront that they like covered in like black wallpaper that says Empire State Building in like gold (laughs) lettering that of course looks literally nothing like the entrance to the Empire State (laughs) Building, which is somewhat, you know, corporate looking and maybe even underwhelming. Yeah. I just thought that was so funny. I'll post a picture of it on our Instagram if you haven't seen it. We were like, wow, the budget on this looks pretty low because I guess it all went to the ice sculpture. (laughs) You know, the storefront had had to take a dip. Anyway, Brooklyn, Carter, please, please do tell. Tell us about Brooklyn and avocado toast and pineapple matcha lattes. I think we have to have the whole conversation here. Rick gives us this description. Then he later on makes a comment about 
like sort of an extended long comment about how Brooklyn is gentrifying. And when he says gentrification, he has Apollo elaborate on this. And Apollo says, yes, I remember being in Brooklyn before and these used to be warehouses and these used to be docks and places where people would work and congregate to do, you know, their organized labor practices in large numbers. And we have to drop in a public service announcement here that that is not what gentrification is. Gentrification is not when you convert land from business use to residential use. It is when you convert land from low income, predominantly non-white residential use to higher income, predominantly white residential use. Gentrification is about the displacement of people who live in a place. And it is not what happens in the natural course of economic development over the course of the past 100 years, where it requires less land to have people do the jobs that people tend to do in cities. And I think that that is an important distinction that Mm. um, gets at some of the perhaps, you know, like maybe a little bit racist undertones in his descriptions of gentrification, where he calls out specifically poke bowls and avocados. It's just unfortunate that we now associate matcha and poke and yoga with uber wealthy white people. It is unfortunate. It's not it's not the things themselves. It's the commodification of those things that has happened. Yes. Poke itself is not malicious. Uh, Poke itself is, in fact, incredible. is incredible (laughs) when it is done right. In Hawaii, (laughs) poke is $7 and delicious and for everyone. And it is not what you will probably find in almost any place in New York where they, um, you know, are so bound up in a capitalist mindset about infinite choice that they will not marinate the fish ahead of time and say that instead you should be able to pick whatever (laughs) seasonings you want on it and your fish is just covered in like a water-based liquid that isn't permeating into the center of the flesh. Terrible. Yeah. Neoliberalism has gone too far. And specifically, we need to clarify this critique because the fact that you see pineapple matcha in these places is not to say that pineapple matcha is inherently bad or that matcha is inherently bad or that these things are inherently symbols of, you know, class oppression. What we really have here is a, you know, joint instance of suffering where in a lot of neighborhoods, people are being displaced. You are seeing in other parts of New York that there are neighborhoods where low income non white people used to live and they're being replaced by high-income white people who are themselves then co-opting the cultural customs of other people and bastardizing them in ways that are really unforgivable and frankly also like not even to their benefit because of a lack of understanding of the cultural underpinnings of the practices and foods and other cultural artifacts that they are bringing with them. The poke is bad. The poke is bad in most of these places. To their detriment. Wow. (laughs) Not to put people on blast, but the number of like very lovely white coworkers I've had who have just been like, I actually don't like poke. It's not even just the white coworkers. I feel like it's literally everyone who's not from Hawaii. At some point in me knowing them, if I've like had more than two conversations with them, they'll be like, oh yeah, I just kind of don't really like poke that much. And they'll be like, I really doubt that you've ever had it, you know, um, as opposed to a salad with a dressing that is lightly garnished by some frozen and then thawed out chunks of of fish, you know? Anyway. This has been a conversation for our eight listeners who were from Hawaii. (laughs) But also for everyone else. If you're not one of those listeners from Hawaii, be very, very selective about where you go to get poke. If you do, look for places that are white-owned and or do not prejudge it based on experiences that are not with real-ass places. All that being said, though, aspiring screenwriters are inherently bad, and they are some of the greatest dangers that Brooklyn poses. And we have we we do need to applaud Rick for that one. So true. It is simultaneously so true. true that Brooklyn is a little bit of a nightmare. Um, and like, I don't Brooklyn know, it's is good that more nightmare. people are doing art, but like that many people... 
and like dress that way. Anyway. Um, <laughs> Gracie Kim had it right when she said that Queens was heaven. <laughs> it really is. That was such a healthy, healthy tangent, Carter. I think you guys really needed that, actually. Um, <laughs> that was for us. That was for you that guys. That was for us. And the reason why it's important is because when you think about gentrification, we have to be really clear that it's good to build more housing. The bad part is not that there's more housing where other things used to be. The bad part is that the housing is not high density and that the housing is not accessible to people with low incomes. And the way that you help make more housing accessible to people with low incomes is you need more housing, especially in New York where there's not enough housing for the number of people who want to live there and the jobs that there are. Anyway, we're moving past it. We are talking about, are we talking about Argus? Argus drops us off. Argus we have not seen in maybe um, eight books. Nine books, maybe? I've missed him. Yeah, quite a bit. He's kind of really in and out. He has the same energy of your second uncle, you know? Like the father of your second cousins, where you're like, oh my God, I love that guy. Like, I love when I see him at family events, you know, at the potluck. I don't see him a lot, but like, we have a great relationship. I miss him. And seeing him makes me generally nostalgic for fun family events that used to happen when I was a kid. You know, I get the same vibe. And it also like, nice callback to like Last Olympian. I think we all kind of agree that like, this book is the big brother to The Lost Olympian. Yes. And the callbacks, you know, in the way that it's set out, even in yeah. terms of like pacing with such a big chunk of the book being like the battle, it feels very Lost Olympian nostalgic. And we've all discussed that like each of the Charles of Polo books are representative of the original series. And it kind of follows that really interesting arc. But yeah, nice seeing Argus again. Love him. Yeah, one of the actors listed on the IMDb page for Percy Jackson and the Olympians, who doesn't have a character title but just says actor, is an actor named Simon Chin. And I don't know why, I just have this gut feeling that maybe he's playing Argus. <laughs> I could be extremely wrong, and we can all laugh when I'm wrong in a year from now, but he could be Argus. He looks like an Argus type. Yeah, sure. Sure. He's played sort of like henchmen a lot before. I can get down with that. When we get to New York, to Brooklyn... Rick says there was a heaviness in the air, like just before Zeus hurled a massive lightning bolt or Beyonce dropped a new album. The world was holding its breath. <gasps> because this book came out in 2020, and you know what had not happened in nearly a decade in the year 2020 was a Beyonce album drop that everyone knew about ahead of time. Mm -hmm. It's funny anyway. We, we take the point. We, we now, as people in 2023, have had the benefit of a Beyonce album drop with prior yeah. warning. And that was what it was like. Zeus could never. Um, yeah, it was exactly what it was like. We head over to Rachel's house and we get more of Rick, you know, talking about real estate developers because that's what Rachel's dad does. Famously, that's where he amassed all of his wealth. And Rick makes further comparison between billionaires and the gods themselves, saying like, Rachel's dad's house is basically the same as God's building palaces on Mount Olympus, being like, hey, look at me and look at my cool house and how much money I have. I didn't know if we needed like a more explicit check-in about the Western civilization of it all. Literally, the emperors are just a business conglomerate and they are doing bad things. And this is perhaps Rick's most socialist book ever. <laughs> yeah. Love that for him. I think the book is certainly full of weaker and stronger socialist allegories. And this is probably one of the stronger ones. Like the critique of Rachel's dad is one that's been ongoing in which we understand and to which this is just kind of the culmination of many books worth of characterization of the many ways in which he is evil and how his money is ill-gotten and all, you know, there's no non-ill-gotten way to have a gigantic mansion that is 5,000 times the uh, square footage of an average New York apartment in the nicest part of Brooklyn. <laughs> I just think it's interesting to take stock of how much more explicit he's gotten over the course of... 
15 plus books because in the original Lightning Thief, we had all of this information about Zeus in a pinstripe suit and being sort of like a businessman himself, but sort of only taking on the form of one, not necessarily being one in real life. And then all the monsters having different chains and, and some of the nicer gods had like more pleasant small businesses like Iris's co-op and whatnot. But now we're just here in the last book of The Trials of Apollo, which is an entire series about how our enemies are three businessmen who have through their many years on earth amassed a generational wealth that simply cannot be fought against and poses a, an impossible challenge to the little guy. He got angrier, Rick. Rick got angrier. <laughs> yeah. As he should. Where were we? We were meeting Rachel. Rachel greets us at the door. She's barefoot. She's doing art. She's living large. Caitlin, did you want to offer some thoughts about yes. <laughs> Rachel? I would love to. I don't know if I've encountered her in an episode before, so I thought I would give a little rundown on my thoughts on her. But yeah, I have grown and matured. I will say, you know, I was young. I was 12. I saw her kiss Percy <laughs> and I was upset. Um, I'll say it, you know. Mm -hmm. We've all been there. We've all been there, you know, and I'm self-aware enough to realize that that was a me problem. Nice. And that was, in fact, not a Rachel problem because if I was in Rachel's spot, I too would also kiss Percy. Like, so it's, true. It's, it's not an issue on her part. Well, it it's was, an issue. let's be clear, it was also kind of a Rick problem. <laughs> it was also, that's so also true. Um, but yeah, I have grown and matured, and so has she, actually. And I love her. I think she's a really, really interesting character. And this work, like, especially. The stakes like just seem so much higher because she herself has personal stakes in it being the Oracle of Delphi and this entire series being about the Oracles. I love that she's here. I love that her personality is still as strong as ever in terms of how I first saw her in the first series. And it's not annoying the way that I think some quote unquote quirky and not like other girls characters are in other series because it like just tries too hard. Like I do think that she feels like an authentic character that I would see, you know, walking around. Like she definitely exists. Like I've definitely come across someone like this before. And I really like that about her. Like she's always represented a lot of like authenticity and just being a good person and being badass. Love her. Big agree. Big agree in every way. Rachel is barefoot. I think that's an important aspect of her characterization. I like how you both made a call out to this. Yeah, this is important. Usually when Caitlin is here, we talk about like Rick's incredible imagery and beautiful descriptions. So yes. I was going to go ahead and read this. Rick writes, Mr. Dare seemed to believe only in concrete, metal, and gravel. His atrium featured a giant stack of iron and stone that was either a brilliant avant-garde sculpture or a pile of leftover building materials. Rachel herself seemed small and out of place here. A warm, colorful aberration padding in her bare feet through an architectural mausoleum. Oh, the juxtaposition of it. It's just, it's so beautiful. Her being an oracle and being colorful and representing, you know, what the future is meant to hold in this place, you know, that's so like <gasps> yeah. concrete and like how we see like the current present. It's like you see that kind literally of literally like, calls it a mausoleum. Yeah, like it's very nice to see that she is like this little ball of color in the middle of all of that. But it's really sad that she's alone because she she deserves better. Yeah. Wow, that's so true. She's like a beacon of hope and light for us. Oh, Carter, take us off. We we got some assorted other details as Rachel welcomes them into their home. Meg makes a beeline for the refrigerator, which was both yes, but also like 
sometimes these descriptions need to chill a little bit. Like she, she might as well hate Mondays and um, be an orange cat. I don't think you need to <laughs> clarify that reference because not everybody grew up reading Garfield comics, Carter. Well, I did. I grew up reading Garfield comics, and <laughs> I think I'm mostly here for it. <laughs> Moving right along, we we have uh, Rachel catching up. She she has done a lot of art. She's in her abstract expressionist era for the most part, but she also has painted some actual expressionist depictions of real scenes that they've all been seeing, or particularly Megan and Apollo have experienced over the course of the last four books. She every time they freed a new oracle, is had a flash of prophecy and depicted whatever she has yes. seen uh, through her art. Yes. But she's you know very frustrated because most of her prophetic abilities are being cordoned off by Python, who is, of course, occupying Delphi, which is her source of power. You've started having visions again. She looked at me with a kind of resentful yearning, as if she were on a sugar detox, and I was waving around a chocolate bar. All of which is to say that she is not seeing the future really clearly and consistently, but she's also had, not to reference whatever, but like, you know, she's had like a, a snake demon inside her head, and that's been a very difficult personal oh. experience for her. It's giving Ginny Weasley, isn't it? Red hair, too. Yeah, I was gonna say, not as ginger profiling her. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say, I don't know if you made a note on it, but this is might be the first time she's, like, directly in a prophecy as well. Apollo pointed out as well. <gasps> That's so true. Apollo pointed out as well, saying that, like, she seemed, like, oddly proud for being part of a prophecy. And then he goes on a little tangent saying that, like, oh, yeah, she's always the one delivering it. She's always the one being brought along to help with the quest, but she's never really the one at the center of it. But she seemed oddly proud of being, you know, part of it. I just care so much more about her being in this book, you know? Yeah, especially like when Rachel first appeared again in this book, I was questioning what her unfinished business was because the characters that have been recurring in the series from Heroes of Olympus and the original series have all been characters that we needed to sort of tie up loose ends on. Yeah. And to me, mostly, I felt like Rachel was pretty secure and set in her path. She was living in that little cave in Camp Half-Blood. But I do think this is her, like you were saying, Caitlin, her unfinished business is like having a main character moment, yeah. like being a part of the prophecy beyond, I guess, Battle of the Labyrinth in which she was used yeah. as the mortal yeah. with the eyes, but like an opportunity like to stand in her sort of prophetic oracular power and make sure that her future is secured for herself. Because we thought that her future was secured until, of course, Python started going on this rampage. And now you know, if Python takes over control of all the oracles, we don't know exactly what's going to happen to Rachel. She could die. She could have her mind possessed for the rest of her life, et cetera, et cetera. So she gets to, like, go on, be a hero to save herself as well as everybody else, which is exciting for her. Good for her. Yes. Honestly, good for her. There there are some cute catch-up moments. I, I think that the relationship between Rachel and Nico, it's, like, painted in an Impressionist fashion where, you know, we have a few streaks okay, Carter. of clear, vivid... Is it painted vivid, in an Impressionist fashion? Um, yes! <laughs> There, there are like a few interactions between them that I feel like you can really zoom back out on and be like, I understand how they interact and why they would interact this way, where it seems like they're not really comfortable with each other. They don't know each other that well, but they do have a strong sense for who the other person is and a strong sense of respect for each other. Like there's there's these details where like Nico is walking around and observing Rachel's, you know, improvements and evolutions as an artist, which I think is like very funny. <laughs> Rachel similarly is updated about Nico's life, but doesn't seem to have that same level of intimacy or like banter with him. Careful, Nico, don't get too close. She says specifically, like, you don't want to ruin your black and white aesthetic with my colored pants. Um, if you accidentally touch one of the paintings. Yeah. Yeah. It's like two cousins who haven't seen each other in a very long time who are like, hear a lot yeah. about each other, 
from the other cousins who are closer to each other, and then they're just like, sup, sup, and like they're just trying to yeah. find like common ground. It's that, like very <laughs> measured, guarded way of trying to communicate that you like have a great deal of respect for someone, but also respecting that there are like boundaries and that like you don't know everything that's going on in their lives, but also being like, I see you and like I know what you're about. I think yeah. It's so, yeah, it's the one uh, other fun. gay person in your family who happens to be your second cousin, and you're like, ah, oh, respect. <laughs> but also, I don't know you. It's like the side <laughs> eye. It's like, mm. yeah. There's a line here about Nico not being fond of cows, and I felt that that was supposed to be a reference to something, but I couldn't remember what it was a reference to. Is it the Triple G Ranch? Does anyone remember? I think the House of Hades call out is likely. That makes sense to me. That's what I was thinking, but I don't remember, like, with Frank, you know, when they did the poisonous plants and stuff, but I don't know if they were, like, cows, so... They were, like, cow-like creatures, but they're supposed to be, like, maybe wildebeests oh, that had Venice? poison breath or something, right? Yeah, in right? Venice, um, there we go, yeah. That and seems like, plausible to oh. me. There, there are, like, a lot of cow-based things that have happened. Like, um, in the Battle of the Labyrinth, there was other cow-based drama related to Annabeth, where Hera was kind of picking a fight with her. And oh, yeah, Annabeth was crap. Or like Hera was trying to figure that out, and then afterwards, Annabeth like constantly just kept stepping in cow poop everywhere because it's like one of Hera's sacred animals. Mm. Um, and presumably, like Nico also does not have a good relationship with Hera, so maybe that literally nobody, nobody has, has a good, good relationship, relationship with Hera. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but if anybody has a more specific or like wants to agree that it, maybe it's the Venice uh, situation, like let us know because I was curious about that. But now we get to page one twenty four for something very important that we need to discuss. I think we briefly mentioned it last week's episode. Carter, did you want to do this reading? Something doesn't feel right. At first, I thought it might have something to do with our neighbors. Rachel gestured north along the waterfront to an unremarkable cluster of old residential towers. They do strange things sometimes. In the housing project, I asked. She arched her eyebrows. You don't see the big mansion? What mansion? She glanced at Will, Nico, Meg, who all shook their heads. Well, Rachel said, you'll have to take my word for it. There's a big mansion over there. Lots of weird goings-on. We didn't argue with her. Though fully mortal, Rachel had the rare gift of clear sight. She could see through the mist and other magical barriers better than most demigods, and apparently better than most lusters. She muttered, once I saw a penguin waddling around on their back deck. A what now? Nico asked. So for those of you who immediately got this reference, good for you. Those of you who didn't, that's also okay. We have not covered the other property on this podcast, so I don't think we are like licensed to uh, deliver any critiques about that. <laughs> um, we would not be in good standing to um, judge you for that gap in your knowledge. This is a reference to the Cain Chronicles, which is Rick Riordan's whoop, whoop. set of books about Egypt. It, it's called the Brooklyn House, the headquarters for all of the you know Egyptian powers in this area is in Brooklyn, and it is where um, currently Carter and Sadie Kane, the sibling protagonists of the Cain Chronicles, are running things, holding court maintaining the balance between order and chaos in this uh, regional area. This is the second call-out as well within the past few chapters, if you've been keeping track. I believe we mentioned in the last episode, there's a reference to a conversation between Mimir, the floating head god from Norse mythology, and Chiron, as well as Bast, who is the Egyptian cat goddess, who is very, very involved with the Cain siblings and the Cain Chronicles as sort of a mentor, babysitter fun aunt type figure who is also you know very powerful and a goddess but also their house cat everything that Chiron wishes he could be oh my god <laughs> she's much better than Chiron she puts yeah. it on the line for them yeah this also is not even the last mention 
there's going to be another mention later on in the book from Chiron about this joint task force meeting that he was at that uh, Dionysus mentioned. And we have run our mouth with Jackson, with Mike, with former guests about the future Infinity War Endgame new Riordanverse multiverse of madness that's going to go down between pantheons crossing over. This is my Infinity War. Yeah, period. <laughs> Up until now, I've really been thinking that it's like several books away. It's maybe like not the next series, but the following one. But honestly, I started thinking about it and especially rereading this section and thinking about what Marco Shiro said about how nobody knows what's happening in the sun and the star and like we're all going to be shook by what goes down. I'm starting to think like, what if the Riordan verse of madness starts to go down in the sun and the star. I mean, it would kind of make sense because like, obviously it's kind of implied that Nico will be going for Bob, right? And yes. the entire thing is you don't go to Tartarus, you know, that's a really big deal. Like, and you also kind of bring up like, oh, is Tartarus, you know, the place for all monsters or is it only for Greek monsters, Greek slash Roman? So like possibly they'll be coming across like other, you know, bad guys in there. So like I think that the idea of crossovers, you know, from all the other books is definitely a possibility because like how are they going to get to Tartarus without a little bit of help? And how are they going to get out of Tartarus without a little bit of help? Not to mention in The Last Fallen Moon, a Rick Riordan Presents book by Gracie Kim, we found out that there is crossover between the different forms of hell that exist within the different pantheons. There we go. Not that mortals can necessarily travel between them, but, uh, you know, people with magic, demigods, whatnot, the gods themselves, sort of all of the gods of hell are a bit in cahoots and they all know about one another. So perhaps this is a good time to start involving other pantheons. Ooh. Carter, thoughts? Yeah, no, I think it makes sense. I don't know why else you would drop this all in this section if it's not going to be an imminent project. Like, he's not going to do a whole series in between these books and Riot and Verse of Madness. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Shall we move on a bit to Rachel's plan? Yes. Let's talk about Rachel's plan. She has plans that she's been able to acquire for Nero's building. She's able to locate where the Fasces are within the building so that, in theory, Apollo and Meg and maybe Lou can go and track them down at some point after they have been taken prisoner. Because like they're going to like surrender or something. Yes, they're going to surrender. And then after they surrender, they're going to break out and then they're going to destroy the Fasces. And then they are going to take down Nero. So she has a little bit more information to help them with that. And then she also has plans to help with the other part of the plan, which is that Nero is also threatening to explode the rest of the city in a ton of Greek fire. So Rachel has also secured blueprints for the basement so that some other strike team, which we know at this point is going to be Nico and Will and Rachel, are going to go in up through the basement and destroy all of that with the knowledge of the plans and also with help from the troglodytes. So that's all the plot information that's going on here. There are some other choice lines of dialogue that come out as we're having this conversation i think that we need to highlight the conversation between will and nico about star wars and mythomagic. magic you know far be it from me to critique the way that someone writes roasting banter i think we already did it i think we already critiqued it well, last we already week. did it and i'm going to do it some more like i again <laughs> to reiterate what we said earlier i'm here for nico will is here insofar as he is good for nico and makes nico happy and these these lines are strange why are you talking about star wars 
that's the end of the sentence. Why are you talking about Star Wars? Why are you talking about Star Wars and assuming that everyone else should know things about this and trying to bully your boyfriend for not knowing about Star Wars? That's weird. Don't do that. Red flag. Huge red flag. See, you guys see red flags, but I see I see cute banner. <laughs> good, good. I'm like close to the fence about it. I'm not on the fence. I don't love it, but I'm like near the fence. I think that if you thought that we were critical before, you have not known us being critical of a friend's significant other. And as we said, Nico is our friend. So I think that we are a little bit hypercritical of the banter between the two of them and worrying about Will maybe forcing his, you know, love of Star Wars onto Nico. As someone who has been forced into loving Star Wars in many relationships, probably every single one I've ever had, I just really feel for Nico here. Like maybe he just doesn't really care about Star Wars. But we're going to move on because to the earlier point we're making, it doesn't matter. We don't need to know about this. <laughs> I just love that while in the midst of us being hypercritical about Will, Rachel is like so sassy to him. He's like, did you like see this in the future? And she's like, no, William, I used logic. <laughs> I like that. I love it. Was, it was good. It's a good line. Yeah, this whole scene just made me miss Annabeth a little bit. At one point, Rachel is like, okay, so if you've already thought of all my ideas, like, why am I even talking? And I was like, oh, Annabeth, like, if she was here, she would have said the same thing. And she and Rachel could be like, you know, having a moment right now. Yeah, because Rachel literally is providing them so much valuable information. <laughs> okay, and then we talk about the troglodytes. Yes, the conversation about the troglodytes begins with a very, very funny aside where Apollo says that the troglodytes are a myth. Is this Will, Will or Nico? It's Nico. Response yeah. going like, a god is telling a demigod that something is a myth. And then Apollo goes, oh, you know what I mean? They aren't real. What Apollo means is that the original writings about the troglodytes in antiquity come from someone who was thought of as a like fiction author as opposed to someone who was documenting pre-existing oral traditions and narratives. And that therefore, within the canon of Percy Jackson, maybe we would not necessarily assume that the troglodytes you know, have metaphysical forms and are things that we can interact with. But uh, but they are. They're real. Nico's met them. Will has also met them and does not like them and has a lot of thoughts about them. Oh, um, <laughs> should we pause our troglodyte conversation and have it when they show up, maybe? Sure. Okay. So we'll, we'll talk more about the trogs once we meet them. I think they're freaking adorable. Um, more on that later. I like them. They're very charming. <laughs> Rachel wants to come, obviously, to go meet the Trogs. And Apollo's like, certainly not. You're mortal. And Rachel says, and essential. Your prophecy told you so. A dare reveals the path that was unknown. All I've done so far is show you blueprints, but I can do more. I can see things you can't. Besides, I've got a personal stake in this. If you don't survive the Tower of Nero, you can't fight Python. And you can't defeat him. Her voice faltered. She swallowed and doubled over, choking. And then here is where we get Python delivering the rest of the prophecy through Rachel Elizabeth Dare. Do you want to read it, Caitlin? Apollo's flesh and blood shall soon be mine. Alone he must descend into the dark, this Sibyl never again to see his sign, less grappling with me till his final spark. The god dissolves, leaving not a mark. Oh, chills. Ooh. That's giving callback to, to Last Olympian as well, where the final prophecy we get is basically saying, like, somebody has to uh, die uh, to accomplish yeah. what we have to accomplish. Always do. And it is heavily implied that the somebody is the protagonist. <laughs> if somebody didn't have to die, it, like, would not be worthy of a prophecy. Do you know what I mean? It's true, yeah. yeah. It'd be like, this is just, like, a silly little adventure. <laughs> so true. Yeah, I just wanted to, like, quickly say, like, Python is, like, really scary um 
and like I love imagery we've kind of talked about this um but yeah just like the imagery of just like the smoke coming out of her but it's not the green smoke that we associate with Delphi yes but it's like yellow murky moldy smoke of python and it's really terrifying to actually think about it like that and like it just happens like out of like nowhere but previous villains they felt like a bit jokey in terms of like Rick's writing because he tries to you know make them more kid friendly and I feel like me as a you know I'm like five six I could take them but like <laughs> the trials of the <laughs> you versus the Minotaur <laughs> yeah but like you would eat them up Caitlin I would you know like in in a in another life as a demigod I could take them but like <laughs> businessmen the triumvirate no way in hell you're gonna see me trying to take down a businessman like capitalism is terrifying I'm sorry I'm like I'm there's no way I'm gonna like try my odds against them yeah I feel so bad for Rachel it is so invasive. Like you said, the smoke coming out of her not being the normal smoke. It's just like the fact that she's being possessed and this like spirit is literally inside of her body. The more you think about it, the more disturbing it is. And Apollo even mentions how Rachel sort of has some issues with personal space. Like she doesn't want people touching her or like coming near her because as the Oracle, she's constantly having to deal with like people inhabiting her body. Interesting. Also interesting that all the Oracles are women because of this, you know, interesting. Yep. Anyway. We don't have much time to think about this because the cows attack. The mysterious cows that the we were so worried attack. about. Did we mention them? I really hope we did. <laughs> I don't know if we did, actually. <laughs> oh, we did it. This is the first thing Rachel mentioned. She was like, there's cows in pens watching me. Uh, and everyone's like, what? What do we do about that? And no one comes to a consensus. And then suddenly after Rachel delivers the prophecy, the cows attack. And then we no longer have really any time to think about this. Yeah. We're running. It's a classic scene. Um, Apollo pretty quickly is like, I know things about these cows um, and they are indestructible. So, As always, they always are. <laughs> as always, we're, we're running out. The art's being destroyed because the house is also being like fucked up by the cows, which are specifically called, I wrote this down somewhere, like Sylvestrian bulls, I think, right? Um, oh yeah, they're forest bulls. Forest. Bulls. I know that because Meg makes this joke about how the Sylvesters are coming. <laughs> yeah, I wrote that being like, I just imagine just like Sue Sylvester from Louis, just like a horde of them. Like that image is like, really terrifying. We're running. It's um, funny. There's some like jokes here and there that we might very briefly mention. Rick has Apollo talk about how he hasn't been this upset since the hashtag MyNoWins first era. Quick explanatory comma here. The Minoan civilization is what modern day, or I guess like historians from the 80s on, have referred to as a civilization that predates what we currently think of as like the true Greek civilization, the Hellenistic traditions based around places like Athens and Sparta and the rest of the Peloponnesian, and also Crete. But this other civilization predates all of those. It was just on the island of Crete, which was famously mythologically ruled by King Minos, which is where this all. That's where the name comes from. They didn't like call themselves that. There is some very fascinating language on the Wikipedia page about how this is the true progenitor of Europe and the West. Um, that's fake. I think we've discussed how and why that's fake and what people are trying to do when they say things like that. It is a weird comparison to make here because clearly Apollo is trying to reference America first, but in a way that is so like obtuse that he would not be able to take a lot of direct flack from people on the internet being like, 
that was a bad analogy or whatever. Because, like, it's not really clear what the mapping is supposed to be here. Like, I, I don't think that there is a large amount of historical evidence to say that, like, the people of Crete before Greece was a big, powerful civilization were, like, nativist? I don't, at least I didn't find any evidence about them having, like, policies about how they treated people from other parts of surrounding areas who were immigrants or anything like that. I think it just might be his way of trying to um, make a fun little Trump critique in a way that was not necessarily that, um, does not have that many levels to it. In a way that Disney would let him publish. Also, (laughs) Disney publishing, shout out to that. I didn't even catch it in that way. My takeaway from this cow attack and then them shadow traveling away, which is what they do to escape, was that at this point, shouldn't shadow travel be a little bit easier for Nico? I just think that he has had a lot of experience shadow traveling and fighting monsters. And at some point, it has to be a little bit easier for him. Like he has to be building stamina and strength and getting more powerful and like eating spinach and like taking iron supplements so that he doesn't pass out every time he shadow travels. I'm just so worried for yeah. him. Because he is anemic. Because he's anemic. He and I are the same for real. <laughs> We're the same. <laughs> Shout out to Nico. <laughs> My interpretation was that it went almost the other way. Where like they, they seem to be implying that in the blood of Olympus, that he did so much shadow traveling that was so um, exhaustive that he like basically injured himself maybe in a way that is kind of permanent where he does not have the capacity to reach the same levels of exertion that he used to. And like, of course, only Nico would like use his powers so much that he becomes like deathly ill. That would literally not happen to any other demigod. It's just a son of Hades thing. (laughs) I'm thinking about Percy and how like in his trajectory of like gaining power and how everyone was basically saying that like, oh, there's like, there's no way like he's going to stop growing because like his power is just like, it's like limitless. And I remember like in a Lost Olympian, the standard was the biggest thing he could do was like a hurricane. And then by Mark of Athena, he was able to summon a hurricane relatively quickly, which is only like about a year later. And by Blood of Olympus, we see basically nothing because I I have issues with Blood of Olympus. Anyway, we hear (laughs) all these things of like Percy being able to do like so much. Like where's that same energy for Nico? Literally, that's what I'm saying. Maybe because he's young. I forgot how how old he is in this. Is he like 16? 16? Like no, younger. Really? Right. Wait. 15? No, maybe 16. 15, 16, I'd say. Because in this book, Percy and Annabeth are already on their way to college. So then, yeah, 15 or 16, I think. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Because he started training relatively around Percy's age, if not a little bit younger. He was taught by, you know, some questionable people. He was like 10. Yeah was taught by some really questionable people, which may have set him aback. But you would think, logically, that he would be, like, at his peak in terms of power. But I guess the exertion from Blood of Lupus would make sense. That And the idea of, like, demigods injuring themselves to that point is a really interesting topic, especially when they talk about, like, PTSD and how that, like, affects, you know, a demigod. Um, and even their powers because a lot of their powers are linked to their emotions and stuff is an interesting like conversation to have and I think the sun and the star will talk about that a lot because it focuses so much on Will and Nico and I really hope that they delve into like his magic powers whatever where it comes from really yeah and how it makes him feel because we've always seen it from like an outside point of view yeah that's so true do you all know that Jamie Lee Curtis video where she says trauma PTSD 
trauma, trauma, trauma. And she just keeps saying trauma really weirdly. That's what I imagine um, we're going to get in the sun and the star as an explanation for shadow travel and also just as the um, premise of the book. <laughs> Literally, like all of his powers come from trauma and accessing his trauma. But specifically, it's trauma. That's where some of the best power comes from. True. <laughs> and with us shadow traveling away, let's take a quick break before we go and meet the troglodytes. Nico's eyelids fluttered. His pupils rolled up in his head and he slumped against Will's shoulder. It might have been a clever ploy to fall into his boyfriend's arms. I have used the catch me handsome fainting trick a few times myself. But since Nico immediately began to snore, I decided he was not faking. I love Apollo being like, I see you. I see you, bitch. Like, I see you doing that move. And then it's not that move, but still. He's just trying to relate. He's very funny. That's a good characterization on many levels. Yeah, <laughs> of both of them. Did you want to say something about Will, Carter? Yes. Okay. Nico is, as we mentioned, asleep. Will is healing everybody, you know, Kit Kat bars, a little bit of ambrosia here and there. And as this is happening, he is basically speaking for Nico and the way that he does it bothers me. I feel like what we are getting here is Will trying to soften some edges to rationalize some of Nico's behavior to um, make him palatable to the compatriots and specifically when we're talking about the troglodytes he is kind of like he's undermining nico's um points and beliefs will being scared of the troglodytes is giving a little bit of annabeth being scared of like cyclops and other monsters kind of energy where she, they just have racist. some personal things that they need to work through <laughs> and that it is racist and they will work <laughs> through it they will get to the other side really quickly because i think i'm reading too much into it but there's this line, it says, the prophecy's line about me dissolving, leaving no mark. It makes me think about humanity in terms of like Apollo, uh, thinking about humanity and how like mortals leave no like real mark. And how that was what he was kind of like, he had an issue with being, you know, a god, like his entire existence is based off of Western civilization, you know, remembering him and, you know, paying tribute to him. And so that prophecy about him just leaving no mark at all like of course that would strike a chord within him you know pun intended because he plays ukulele um <laughs> that nice, would nice. Make him, thank you it would make him like really fear you know python but i also could be reading too much into it so let's move on no i think that's absolutely right i totally think that's right moving on to so they are down in the sewers we didn't mention that they shadow traveled like underneath into the sewers there are some funny lines about wow the sewer would make a great nyc apartment you know the floor space like the smell of mold um it's big it's big like incredible and i laughed i did <laughs> laugh about that and this is where we get because it is dark will showcasing his special power which we have never before heard of i loved this moment this is like plus 15 points for will for me he's basically that one character from sky high Flower, <laughs> <and> glow. <laughs> wow that's a reference he sat down his pack and stripped off his linen overshirt leaving just his tank top i still had no idea what he was doing though the girls didn't seem to mind letting him do his thing did Will keep a secret concealed flashlight in his undershirt? Was he going to provide light rubbing lichen on himself and smiling brilliantly? This being some of the Solangelo banter that I really enjoy in this book, which is Nico being like, Will, do the thing. Yeah. And Will being like, I don't want to. And Nico being like, no, you guys are going to think this is hilarious. Like, do the thing. And like <laughs> embarrassing him a little bit, you know? That is so true. Like, that is very Nico to me. Being like, Will, I yes. love this thing that you do. And I don't care if it embarrasses you. I'm going to make you do it in front of everybody else because it entertains me. And also it's useful. And so he makes him glow in the dark. Yes. That was good writing. I enjoyed that. He's very like, Nico's language is so like, 
how would I describe this? It's like very um, practical. Um, and like, he's not like being effusive about it. It's not like he is saying like, my boyfriend is like very cool. Like everyone is going to be so impressed by this. He's like, this is kind of funny, but it does happen to be useful in this one context. So I'm just going to bring it up and make him yeah. do it. <laughs> but then Apollo is, you know, again, because Apollo is narrating it, it turns into Apollo being just like proud of Will, which is sweet too, because they do enjoy that Apollo's kids have so many different kinds of powers because Apollo himself is the god of so many things mm. that this is a power we did not even know Apollo children could have. And I think it's fun. Some people hate when like world building continues deeper than 30% into a book. But I love finding <laughs> out like, oh, this is a secret power of a kids of Apollo that we never knew about because we've never known all that much about kids of Apollo beyond them are good at archery and they can also be healers. It would make total sense that one of his kids can glow in the riot verse, and I love that. Yeah. Page 163. Nico smirked. Friends, meet my glow-in-the-dark boyfriend. Could you not make a big deal about it? Will asked. I was speechless. How could anyone not make a big deal about this? As far as demigod powers went, glowing in the dark was perhaps not as showy as skeleton summoning or tomato vine mastery, but it was still impressive. And like Will's skill at healing, it was gentle, useful, and exactly what we needed in a pinch. I'm so proud, I said. Will's face turned the color of sunlight shining through a glass of cranberry juice. Dad, I'm just glowing. I'm not graduating at the top of my class. I'll be proud when you do that too, I assured him. Oh, Not this healing a little bit of my inner child. Oh, <laughs> Caitlin, I'm proud of you, Caitlin. I'm proud of you. <laughs> Thank you. I needed to hear that. You're doing great things. <laughs> Something about the Ghost King, the Prince of Darkness, and his glow-in-the-dark boyfriend. That is classic YA. Poetic cinema. Love it. Really leaning hard into that. One of them is blonde. One of them is not blonde. <laughs> that about takes us to the Trogs. Should we have a conversation about the Trogs? Let's talk about them. Because you said here that they're basically like tiny human beings. And in my head, they were like three foot tall velociraptors wearing hats. So clearly my brain did some tricks on me when I was reading this. Oh, yeah. I'm reading the description. Like The troglodytes looked even stranger than the 1960s band that appropriated their name. They were small humanoids, the tallest barely Meg's height with vaguely frog-like features wide thin mouths, recessed noses, and giant brown heavily lidded orbs for eyes. Their skin came in every shade from obsidian to chalk. Bits of stone and moss decorated their dark plaited hair. And they'll wear hats. The hat thing is so cute. Please, I love the hats. (laughs) I think it really depends on where your brain jumps when you hear the phrase humanoid. I don't know why ever since I was a kid when I heard the phrase humanoid in a book, I would immediately go to something only a teeny, teeny bit human. I'd be like, okay, so they're like bipedal and they have arms and faces. And that's kind of it. As opposed to like mostly basically just a human with a few differences. I think that will color what these creatures look like for you. It is an ambiguous word. Yeah. But it's very easy if you want some more information about troglodytes, you can just go to the Wikipedia page or like any website and see all of the different mentions throughout antiquity. There's not that many. Um, They're being like cave dwelling creatures. Carter talked a little bit about like whether or not they were fictional or not in antiquity. They were creatures that supposedly lived in North Africa when they were mentioned in myth. So similarly to how we thought about the pandai, in Burning Maze, and also the conversations we've been having about the Germani and the Celtic Gauls and whatnot, we should just be a little bit critical about the portrayal of what could have possibly just been like an ethnicity of non-Greek people in dimensions within antiquity. It's also like you don't, I, I feel like it is useful to have the historical context 
But at the same time, independent of the historical context, it's still weird that these are creatures that are thoughtful and intelligent and have a ordered ethical civilization. And yet Will is talking about them like they are, you know, incomprehensible monstrosities. Classic Annabeth Chase. Maybe because they like don't look that much like humans, but they're basically people. They happen to have a different culture and happen to be a little bit shorter. And also, I guess, have abilities that most humans don't have. But like they're really, really fast runners and they're really, really good at digging. (laughs) Yes. But like, again, you can imagine this being about like, literally like human people. But this relationship and dynamic between Will and Nico, I think is important. And it does make sense that Will would be somebody who is a little bit more afraid of or biased against a sort of unknown race of humanoids that we've never encountered before and they're very mysterious. And that Nico, on the other hand, is very quick to trust them using his own uh, personal data that he has collected about them because Nico monster queer monster misunderstood (laughs) prince of darkness that he is is going to be somebody who understands misunderstood people more than somebody else and i have a feeling that this dynamic which apollo spells out here as will worry 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 nico calm down probably won't die will worry trogs dangerous yikes nico trogs good nice hats is this probably going to be a dynamic that plays itself out in the sun and the star as we walk through Tartarus and Will is going to be like scared of everything and Nico's going to be like, this is my buddy, like, don't worry about it. And I think also because Will is a healer, so he's not always in the thick of the fight. So I don't know how much. Yeah, he's probably really cautious. Yeah, experience he would have, you know, like being like fighting one on one with monsters. And also troglodytes, their entire um, myth is like being in the dark, like Apollo didn't know about them because he has no reason to know about them because, you know, they're underground, they're away from light. And, you know, Will is a son of Apollo and he emits literal light. Oh, this is true. So like, it's giving Athena spider. Yeah, it's like the natural order of things is that, you know, light and dark typically won't mix mm-hmm. or like they will fear each other. That makes sense. Yeah, th- this this makes sense. I'm on Nico's side of this and I'm a little apprehensive about Will not only having these prejudices, but specifically distrusting Nico and slowing down the way that things are moving here through his constant expressions of distrust. But we'll we'll proceed. Meg also immediately likes the troglodytes, which is very on brand. Ten points to the trogs and to Meg. She thinks <laughs> that these like <laughs> cave dwelling, like moss covered lizard eating people rock, which is so true. When they go to dinner later, she's like loves the skink soup. Yeah. And she drinks like multiple bowls of it. I just love her so much. And like knowing what a skink looks like makes me a bit ill to the stomach. And she's like, I'm looking it up right now. It's a big lizard. Oh, it's very it's got a very large tail. I see why this would Yeah. would yes be a moment. I felt really uncomfortable when she ate the soup. The reason I guess we didn't mention if you need a refresher why we're talking about skinks here is because the troglodytes famously like eat lizards and Nico found out on one of his data collecting adventures that the skink is considered like a delicacy. So he being the planner a header that he is brings a skink to this meeting so that they will accept these foreign surface dwelling people and hopefully help them in their quest towards the Tower of Nero. Yes. Lots of people eat lizard as well. That's that's a caveat we should include. Like human homo sapiens people on Earth in real life 
I, I do not plan to eat a lizard, but yeah, just, power just to the people who do. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you. valid. <laughs> For some reason, the fact that they eat lizards make me think of them as lizards. And I think that lizards are so cute. And they just go, blip, blip. Um, and so to me, the troglodytes are just like, blip, blip, <laughs> dinosaurs. <laughs> I feel bad, though, because I feel like I was infantilizing them in my head. And they are really just like smart humanoids. But I was like, oh, blep, blep. Oh, they're so cute. They have a bunch of hats. Oh, George washing trog. Okay. Well, the last like plot-oriented thing that we have here is that Rachel is finalizing the last piece of our plan here. Specifically, she insists that the rest of the campers need to launch an attack on the Tower of Nero in order for everything else to work, in order for them to have time to execute the uh, disarming of the Greek fire explosions underground. Nero needs to credibly believe that he can kill more people in an act of mass murder. And the way to do that is to have him assume that all the campers are on their way to the tower to attack it, and therefore also to be caught up in the act of mass violence. And also, beyond that, like Rachel's like, it can't just be a bluff because Python is there and Python knows the future. So they actually need to um, be on their way and put themselves in danger. And then they have this conversation about what that means and Apollo taking these potential risks and consequences very seriously. I, I don't know if I mentioned it, but Tower of Nero was my second favorite book in the series. And then Burning Maze was my first one. And the reason why Tower of Nero was my favorite was because the development of Apollo's character was so nice and it felt natural and it felt like it was really coming from somewhere genuine and the reason why Burning Maze was my favorite was because that's where it begins. Yeah I mean speaking of Burning Maze we have Apollo thinking back to what Jason said to him before he perished here when it comes to Apollo questioning putting all the campers in danger and what is to come with this final battle. He thinks about Jason telling him to remember to be human. And I don't want to force you to read this, Caitlin, but I was wondering if, since you love Burning Maze, if you would like to read this section here on page 176. I think I know it. Oh, okay, yeah, that's like, I actually wrote like a little passage in my, my personal book being like, this page is bookmarked because it made me feel so many feelings. <laughs> yes, okay. Hit us with that 176. Mortals and gods had one thing in common. We were notoriously nostalgic for the good old days. We were always looking back to some magical golden time before everything went bad. I remembered sitting with Socrates back around 425 BCE and us griping to each other about how the younger generations were ruining civilization. As an immortal, of course, I should have known that there were never really any good old days. The problems humans face never really change because mortals bring their own baggage with them. The same is true of gods. I wanted to go back to a time before all the sacrifices had been made, before I had experienced so much pain. But making things right could not mean rewinding the clock. Even Kronos hadn't had that much power over time. I suspected that wasn't what Jason Grace would want either. When he told me to remember being human, he'd meant building on pain and tragedy, overcoming it, learning from it. That was something gods never did. We just complained. To be human is to move forward to adapt, to believe in your ability to make things better. That is the only way to make the pain and sacrifice mean something. I met Rachel's gaze. I trust you. I'll make things right or I will die trying. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. Again, with the Disney-approved references to make America great again. 
Rick said the good old days are a myth, which I appreciate hearing from him, knowing his love of the Civil War and whatnot. It's good to just hear that from his mouth. There's no such thing as the good old days. Yes. People will always pretend that there are and that young people are ruining things, but that is not true. And like inherent, literally, Rick somehow laying out for children that like progress is inherent to human beings and that we must yeah. progress and we must learn from the past. Him being a history teacher, this is just, I've never really heard this laid out in this way for kids, like a way to prove to them that progressing forward is important. Yeah. It's so nice and like he really shut down the haters. He really did, and like this being like <laughs> reading it from the perspective and the context of being like, if this is the last book Rick Riordan writes for the Percy Jackson series, this is his last mark he wants to make yeah. on the readers that have grown up with Percy Jackson since yeah. the beginning. It means so much more, and I remember the first time reading it sobbing because I was like, he's telling us that we're going to be okay from now on. He's telling us that we're the future of <laughs> everything, and <laughs> like. No. Okay, this is like 2020. I was like, what, 19? Yeah. So it's really funny that I'm just like, oh, well, there's more now. And there's more books coming. So it's actually fine. I was just being dramatic, <laughs> but it's okay. <laughs> no, Rick gaslit us into thinking this was the end. It's okay. <laughs> he really did. He fell for it, but it's okay. I, I forgive him. Yeah, I think this passage is so, so, so special. The way it ties in Jason's words with oh. Apollo's character development with the culmination of the plot involving the triumvirate with modern uh, sociopolitical commentary. It's really satisfying. Yeah. Yeah. It's a marriage of like everything coming up as, you know, the, I know they called it the last Libyan, as the Tower of Nero being you know, the last book. It's just, it's so good. Some really, really good writing on Rick's behalf, you know. Proud of you, Rick, even though you don't know who I am. <laughs> Proud of you, Rick. Not to mention, now we get to go into this battle knowing exactly firmly where Apollo stands, like knowing he has gone through all the character development and like he is going to possibly die trying to make this right and to save everybody else. But we have the lingering question in our mind, which is what can Apollo possibly do to make things right and to right all of the wrongs of his past, which is a question we have been asking since the series started. Like, what could possibly redeem him at this point, and that is the exact question that he asks at the end of this section. Knowing that his past actions were wrong and knowing that he wants to live up to the words of Jason Grace and the wishes of Jason Grace, he simply does not know how to go about that. And so that is what we are going to be sort of left in the dark about until the end. How is he possibly going to redeem himself? We will have to wait to find out. Wow, look at that. Um, with that, we'll... <laughs> We'll see everybody next week, I guess. That's a really nice place to end it, actually. Yeah. Anything lingering things? No, I don't think so. I think reading that passage was really healing for me, I think. I, I really needed that. Yeah. That was really good. <laughs> Yay! I'm glad I forced you to read it. Thank you for reading that, Caitlin. <laughs> um, can you remind everybody where they can find you on social media, please? Um, you can find me on Instagram and like pretty much anywhere at Persebeth feels fandom one word or you can find me at caitlin reads a lot also kind of anywhere i've been a bit quiet because i've been working full-time unfortunately but because you're working for the triumvirate at, you know who knows <laughs> <laughs> check out persabeth feels fandom 
can find us on Instagram at Seaweed Brain Podcast, on Twitter at Seaweed Brain Pod. We also have a Patreon now. Check it out, patreon.com slash seaweed brain. The link is in our show notes. We have an episode out you can listen to now. We're going to do once a month special Patreon episodes. It's a super fun time. Join the club. Um, and make sure if you give us a review or a rating to let us know about it so we can shout you out on the show, ask us questions, we will answer them. And other than that, we will see everybody next week for some more in-depth troglodyte conversations and bonding time heading to the Tower of Nero. Bye, y'all. Bye. Bye.